0: This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Harry Bloom, Leon Gluckman, Arthur Goldrach, Stanley Lasser, the Minnels, and Percy Tucker were the Jewish artists involved with the 1959 South African jazz musical King Kong. They are part of the group that was featured in the art section of Jonathan Anser's book Menches in the Trenches in a chapter entitled Jews, Jazz, and Joy. Who better to talk about this magical performance than Alan Swerdlow, whose name is synonymous with the arts in this country. Alan has researched King Kong and has indeed worked with many of the people mentioned, so I'm delighted to have him as my guest. Alan, welcome and thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you and thanks for that introduction.
1: Just to say I am one of your biggest fans.
0: Well, thank you. but It's mutual. It's mutual. (laughs) I support what you do all the way
1: a black cast and a Jewish production team on the 2nd of February, 1959 at Witts University. The curtains opened and there was a magical production, King Kong. Tell me about it.
0: Well, it goes back a little earlier. The seeds of it were sown by a guy called Ian Bernhardt, uh, part of this incredible group. Ian started a a group for black performers in South Africa. It was one of the first attempts at uh, defying the increasing apartheid laws that were being instituted at the time. And in fact, he even did an all-black production of Comedy of Errors, which was the first time there'd been an all-black South African production of a Shakespeare play. He formed something called the Union of African Artists, and they worked out of the Bantu Men's Social Club, the so-called Bantu Men's Social Club, which existed down at the bottom of uh, Empire Road in Johannesburg and was one of the few locations where the black population of an urban Johannesburg could express themselves creatively, could learn, could perform, could uh, acquire technique and skills, things like that. And it was an extraordinary work. It, it really was extraordinary work that Ian did. This later expanded. Eventually it became United Artists and uh, the name changed a few other times. They started working out of Dorke House, which is just around the corner from uh, the Bantu Men's Social Club. And uh, that, of course, was the crucible for King Kong. There is another two key factors. It's an extraordinary bringing together of people who, who just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Harry Bloom, by the way, the stepfather of Orlando Bloom, the actor, Harry Bloom, had the idea, he was one of the first people, he he really thought he was so impressed with the talent that was coming out of the Union of African Artists and uh, the work that Ian Bernhardt was doing and the talent that was there, this incredible talent, that he had the idea for a jazz opera. And he started looking around for his topic, and at the topic, it was hot of the press. There was a boxer in South Africa, in Johannesburg, a guy called Ezekiel Dlamini, who had a tragic life. And his life was, in essence, it, it, it was ideal for opera in that sense that it was slightly larger than life. It was tragic, but it encompassed so many aspects of the, the human experience. As a boxer, he got involved uh, in a gang. He killed a gang member. He was sentenced to uh, prison. Uh, prison experience. He was released. And he, unfortunately, during that time, killed his girlfriend as well in a fit of rage. I mean, the guy had problems, he, he had problems and uncontrollable rage and eventually ended up in prison. And in fact, it was in prison that he committed suicide. He drowned himself in a lake that was in the prison grounds. And Harry Bloom thought this was an amazing story. And he set about it and started bringing in all the people. They needed a composer, obviously, And a young guy called Todd Machakiza, who was working at Drum magazine. Again, it was the heyday of of that incredible explosion of writing talent that was happening in Drum, Cantemba, all those people who were involved. He was working as a musician, but he was also working as a writer. And uh, he was brought in onto the project and slowly it built and you had then, uh, you needed the director and Leon Gluckman, who was the great hope of South African theatre, an extraordinarily talented man as an actor and as a director, he'd gone over to the UK, he was breaking into international theatre in a remarkable way, he was working with people like, Catherine Hepburn and Robert Helpman on tours for the Old Vic uh, around the world, particularly in Australia. And he had just reached the point where he was the next superstar of the Old Vic company. And he decided to come back to South Africa because his passion was he was watching what was happening in South Africa in terms of uh, the political life and these increasing, the increasing repression through the early 50s as all these laws were passed and instituted by the Nationalist Party, who had only just taken power in 1948, as it were. Incidentally, Leon Glutton's father had been the first Jewish minister in South Africa in Smuts's government in the United Party. Uh, he was the first minister of health, in fact, Jewish mm. minister of health. But um, Leon wanted to come back and he was determined, he thought theatre was the perfect way to unite black and white in South Africa. So he gave up this international career, returned to South Africa, and he set about, he was, you know, on board immediately. Then you had somebody like uh, Arthur Goldreich, who was an artist. He was also teaching art. He was a painter. And, of course, he was one of the people arrested at Lily's Farm uh, in the Ravonia trial. Eventually, he was one of the few people with Harold Wolpe managed to escape from detention and uh, lived his life out in exile. He came on board as the designer. Percy Tucker was in the meantime working, uh, trying to set up the first proper booking agency in South Africa for selling tickets, show services, um, which eventually became CompuTickets. And we know that's another whole story in itself. But anyway, in an abandoned warehouse that they managed to find somewhere down, I think it was down the bottom end of... De Villiers Street or somewhere around about there. they set up rehearsals and they built the show slowly. Um, and, uh, Bloom had written the book. Todd Matrakza was writing the music. They brought in a uh, choreographer. That, you know Arthur Goldreich was designing the sets, the costumes, the poster, the you know all the graphics, everything that, that was to do with the show. And Percy was helping in any way that he can. He says in his own book that he, any moment that he had, he shot off down to that rehearsal room where he swept the room, made tea for the cast, did whatever he could to, to help see this incredible project come to fruition. Nobody had ever tried anything like this. It was the first real homegrown musical in South Africa. And then, of course, the cast that was involved at the time were complete unknowns, but included people like um, Maria Makeba, who made her name and also went on to international career. Hugh Masekela, great, great jazz musician, trumpeter, who in fact was married for a while to Maria Makeba, became very complicated. Abigail Kubeka, I mean, names that are legendary in South Africa. And there was, at that stage already, there was complete segregation instituted and particularly segregation instituted in the theatres and uh, you couldn't have mixed audiences, but there was a loophole on university campuses university campuses at that stage um the the regulations hadn't been passed which also separated higher education out and there was still a fair amount of you know mixing on the camp the campuses of wits and uct and durban and the wits great hall was made available for them to use terrible venue horrible space but it was converted and utilized in such a way in 1959 the production of King Kong opened and blew the country away. People were they they just couldn't believe the talent and the expression and the story and something that was so homegrown that it had grown out of the country. And it was because at the time the laws were just being imposed step by step by the Nationalist Party, it, there was still a certain amount of, particularly amongst creative people, mixing and, and interchange. And it was one of the first and one of the last simultaneously moments of where it did, they were just South Africans working on a story. It wasn't a political story, it was a kind of a Romeo and Juliet, you know, f- fated, ill-fated love story. But with this incredible music, this incredible cast, Leon Gluckman's direction is still spoken about today. The wonderful designs that Arthur Goldreich did, everything just came together. It was one of those magic, magic moments. And of course, the show went abroad. It was staged in the UK I mean there's a wonderful photograph of princess margaret uh, attending and watching and literally going, being absolutely amazed by these people from the dark continent coming and displaying uh, their their talents and she was the the wild one of the family um it uh, and then of course by that stage uh, it was now the very early 60s and uh, south africa uh, left the Commonwealth and became a, an independent republic. And it seemed at that point, all the hopes, everything that had brought Leon Gluckman back to South Africa and the dreams of a multiracial cultural expression in this country were being narrowed down, narrowed down, narrowed down all the way. And in fact, a large percentage of the cast, when the run was concluded in London, elected to stay there, go into exile. That's the point at which Maria Makeba goes into exile, Hugh Masekela, Abigail Kubeka came back to South Africa and of course continued her amazing career here, despite, in spite of, but it was that moment of choice, I think. And it was something that set the creative arts in South Africa back. A huge amount because of that loss of talent, because they'd been displayed. We knew we had the goods. Unfortunately, because of the political situation, they decided that, you know, they couldn't make a go of it here and they were going to stay out of the country. Big turning point. But, you know, the amazing thing is that King Kong has had this life that's gone on for years. People wanted to revive it, people wanted to do stay. There was a terrible version that was done, I think it was in the late 70s at His Majesty's Theatre by an American guy came over and thought that he knew how to do this and you know whatever it was and it bombed it was an absolute disaster because it was an imposition of broadway into south african politics and again it was that it happened so often we're here to show you how and uh, (laughs) it drives us crazy of course but it happens in south africa all the time that failed there was there were many attempts the market theater wanted to do it at one point there were problems that you know fell into the whole area of ownership of of the the rights uh, you know there was todd Machakiz's family there was uh, harry blooms' family there were um, various people who had become involved in the production and which percentages most were dead or unfortunately, living abroad. So it became this huge legal challenge. And then most recently, Eric Abrams uh, restaged it, managed to somehow get the rights and control together and staged it at the Fugard Theatre and then came up to Johannesburg, to the Johannesburg Theatre. The whole hope on Eric's part was that it was going to go into the West End and, and just sit there for a long, long time. Unfortunately, it's, it's not that there's a curse on the production, but uh, some sometime in the future in a, in a more joyous and happier South Africa, I think we will see a, a revival of King Kong that will do honor and justice to the original because those talents that came together, and it is extraordinary that the creative, just about, I think, 90% works out of the creatives involved in that production were all Jewish South Africans. And, you know, it's a kind of a legacy project and, uh, you know, mentions in the trenches in their way, in their field, trying to do the very, very best that they could to change the future of the Mm -hmm. arts in South Africa.
1: And we've come to the end of, of this slot, but maybe it can't be recreated because maybe it was part of a magic of a certain time. And maybe magic just can't be recreated like that. Maybe it was just meant at that time to be what it was and to launch the careers of so many and, Maybe it just can't be repeated.
0: It's absolutely possible, you know, that is something. But, you know, one one, one hopes that there are things that live on, that live on. I heard a story just yesterday of somebody whose father had gone into exile, was in Ghana, in fact, living in Ghana. And somehow somebody had managed to get a copy of the recording of King Kong to him. And he would just sit every weekend he was working, and every weekend he would just sit with a glass of something to drink and a cigarette, and he would listen to this record again and again and again until it wore out, until it literally wore out crying because it was his connection with home.
1: Yeah, Um, I can imagine.
0: And the well, best Alan, of art does that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Alan, thank you so much for joining me and sharing that story.
0: It's the greatest pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's Alan Swerdler, the Diane of arts in South Africa, talking about the incredible musical King Kong.